Support for Inkslingers comes from the Leon Levy Center for Biography, cultivating important discussions about the art and craft of biography. Welcome to Inkslingers. I'm Jenny Skoog. Today's guest is Thad Zilkowski. Thad is the author of four books, including his most recent, The Drop, which explores the relationship between surfing and addiction and will be published on July 6, 2021 by HarperCollins. His essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times and Slate. He's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and holds a PhD in English literature from Yale University. Thad Zilkowski, welcome to Inkslingers. Thank you, Jenny. Great to be here. Congratulations on the forthcoming publication of your memoir, The Drop, How the Most Addictive Sport Can Help Us Understand Addiction and Recovery. What led to this book? Well, I was a, I, I'm a lifelong surfer, and um, I grew up among you know a lot of surfers who were almost by definition addicted to the sport of surfing. And sometimes that led to or seemed to create a kind of gateway to addiction to other things. And the interest, the, 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 the thing that always struck me about surfing as a surfer was how powerful the hold was on me, how difficult it was for me to quit surfing and go to college. And, and that experience of quitting surfing in order to focus on my college studies felt like quitting a drug. <clears throat> So the analogy between addiction to substances and addiction to this activity, which is connected to the ocean and wilderness, was always really obvious to me. I also grew up surfing in the 70s, um, really the late 60s. I started in 69, technically. And um, counterculturally, there was just a lot of... Um, there was a lot of permeation of, of surfing with the drug culture, pot, some drinking, psychedelics, um, and later other things. But by the time the other things came in, the harder stuff like cocaine, um, I, I, had, I had turned away from surfing. And I got into that other stuff through the identity of, a write, of being a writer. You know, so I switched tracks, but ultimately I found myself in a, in a similar situation to a lot of surfers, uh, which is to say addicted to substances. Tell me about this term, the drop. The drop is a term that uh, is, a, I guess, a, a sort of a slang or argo uh, term of surfing that means the beginning of a wave. So you drop into a wave. The drop is the descent. It's the initial thing. And in a way, it's the most thrilling part of a wave, uh, typically. You can get a tube ride after you drop in, or you can get a tube ride right away. But the feeling of dropping into a wave, uh, that slight feeling of vertigo, not vertigo, but uh, free fall, of losing your gravity is extremely powerful and intoxicating. And um, that sense of it, is is also like the sort of the perilous slide into addiction. It struck me as a similar thing, and um, so that was the kind of the comparison or the metaphor I like to set up it with the title. 
You became addicted to uh, cocaine in graduate school, actually at Yale at the age of 27. What mm -hmm. led you to cocaine? Um, I was always trying to, well, I had, I had always read that the, the Beats and various other writers use stimulants to write. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, there's a lot of amphetamines in writing and a lot of, and, but by the time I started getting interested in, 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 in effect, creating, um, you know, a little extra push, something stronger than coffee um, that wouldn't cloud my consciousness the way alcohol always did. By the time I got interested in that move as a writer, um, amphetamines were not in the picture culturally. It was hard to get them. They had been out of, they, followed, they had fallen out of fashion. So what was around that was a stimulus was cocaine. And that's kind of how I slipped into it. It was social. And then I realized almost instantly that it was a great writing drug. And so I retreated from what always struck me as wasteful. Like, why would you waste this talking in a party when it can help you write? And so I, I found myself um, using it as an aid to writing effectively. And I could write any which I could write, I could write academic papers that way. I could write poetry that way. I could write whatever, letters. It just focused me beautifully at first. <laughs> and when you say at first, at what point were you sort of under this realization that you're now addicted and it's no longer fun? Yeah, it, <laughs> it wasn't that long. It was probably a few months. I mean, I was involved with a girlfriend who just found it insulting that I preferred to be with this other person, so to speak, than with her. And also that I was less uh, reliable, that I couldn't be counted on, you know, that it, it took me to, I, I, it took me out of, it took me out of a sort of sphere of just common courtesy and liability. And I realized that I, and I, and I, and I, I would quit and then slip back into it through their socializing. Um, but it, but the, but the realization that it was a problem came, I would say, you know, a few months, it wasn't that long before I saw it as a problem. And then how long would you say that you were in and out of this addictive state? Well, I had probably the, you know, I was probably in an, I was probably in the har hardest portion of that for about, it depends on how you measure it, really. I mean, for me, it was probably like five years, 10 years. It, it's, but there was a really decisive break in my 30s in New York City when I started surfing again. And that felt like a, a kind of purification, right? Um, and that was the beginning of breaking with all substances with surfing again it was like a replacement addiction in a way i was like oh okay this is a reliable addiction i know this one and i know that it does in a way a complete activity it doesn't require anything else and that was what i always loved about surfing it was the totalizing power of it um so it was a process and it was over years um, it's a little bit hard for me to give you a tidy narrative of it in that way, but it was, yeah, mm. um, it, it really began to shift for me when I started to surf again. The decision to quit, 
is also a powerful decision, right? And so at that point, did you immerse right. yourself into surfing or tell, tell me about that process a little bit? Yeah, I mean, what happened at that moment was in a way very difficult. It was, it required, uh, it required me to um, sort of jerk myself away from a space or a connection that I had come to rely on as part of my identity. As, as something I would, this simply was, in, was a, like a part of my body. And in a way that's, that's, that's physiologically maybe the case too. Um, and surfing, what surfing did, did was to help me make that transition, the kind of deprivation and the cutting, the kind of, the kind of cold turkey um, violence of that change. Surfing permitted that to be possible in a way because it gave me pleasure in another way. I transitioned from one, and I don't think that I could have done the psychic surgery, so to speak, had I not already started surfing. You know, surfing gave me the, the kind of basis um, for that um, self-surgery uh, that, 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 that I had to kind of alter something that had been become second nature, you know, that had become, um, that had become simply a, a component part of my identity. And, and you write about having surfing as sort of the safety net, but also you learned meditation. So how has meditation affected your writing? Mm. Um, meditation helps with writing in the sense that um, you're, your consciousness becomes kind of blank and there's a, there's less of an inclination to um, to judge what arises. You know, meditation is a very much like a platform uh, for witnessing what occurs in consciousness and writing, especially um, in the beginning, you know, you, you want to have a flow that you're not judging that you're able to watch what happens come out onto the page and not be too self-editorializing, not be too self-conscious, not be judgmental so that, you know, the flow ceases and there's a kind of turning away. So meditation permits you to sort of just watch. <clears throat> and if you transcribe in the watching, that's writing, you know, you, if you're transcribing what you're witnessing, that's also a kind of writing. So it's, a, it's a, meditation is a great way to just create an openness to what's occurring in your consciousness. And you were a young boy when you learned transcend transcendental meditation. Right, yeah, my mother gave me uh, transcendental meditation lessons when I was 16 and um, I took to it right away. I, I, really, I really liked it and um, I had seen uh, because I, I never really stayed and connected to the transcendental meditation uh, as an institution. It was a school and you could have gone to classes and I could have gotten new mantras as I changed age, but I, I kept the same mantra I had at 16. And I recently, when I was writing this book, um, interviewed a surfer addict, a famous one in Australia, uh, from Australia, Tom Carroll, a world champion. And he, uh, had overcome methamphetamine addiction and uh, was is very admirably open about all that. But he had started to teach 
uh, transcendental meditation. And I said, you know, it's funny because I have this mantra from when I was 16. And he said, what is it? And I, I told him what it was. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's for children. <laughs> and I said, well, it's still working. So I guess I'm not. <laughs> that's but, amazing. You know, I, I went online and, and I found that, you know, at every stage of maturation, so to speak, they give you a different mantra. Yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more about your mom. So she makes an appearance in this book a couple times and um, it sounds like she was there for you at a time that you needed this tool, right? Tell me about her. Yeah, my mother's a very special woman. She's always been uh, a big um, reader and she's always been reading a sort of psychology and astrology. She was involved in all sorts of kinds of um, div forms of divination, you know, we would call it. And she's always been, she was, when I was a boy, she was always giving advice to her friends. And she gradually got more and more spiritual over time. And um, various crises in her life created, you know, greater degrees of sort of spiritual authority in her. And so she, 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 but for me, you know, as, as a boy, having a mother like that uh, was great. And she was someone I could always talk to. And she would also always sort of be slightly ahead of, she would also suggest something that would work for me. You know, she was just always there kind of facilitating. She gave me my surf, first surfboard. She was always just kind of there to encourage um, and was just very open uh, to that. But she's a really remarkable person and she gives you know, she's kind of like a guru now. She gives satsangs. She lives on Maui. She has followers. She's gone through a really big evolution in her life from this person who gave advice to her, her, her women friends and was a kind of early feminist to, um, to being like a guru. Polly wow. Summerlin, you can look her up <laughs> online. You write about your, your stepfather and your brother's suicides. How were mm -hmm. you able to write about such traumatic incidents in your life? Um, well, trauma is often really powerful. And as a writer, you know, you know, instinctively what's going to be dramatic and is going to be interesting and is going to be uh, hold hold a reader and hold you, you know, as a writer. And so I was very, um, I've written about it in other books, indirectly or directly. So I was coming at, I felt like I was coming at it again from a different angle. Um, so it was less a question of do I dare do this, but how do I do it this time? I'd already done it, you know, and I'd, I've, I feel like I've always been kind of reflecting on it in one way or another, indirectly or directly as a writer. So it was hardly, you know, like trepidation, I felt. It was more technical. It was kind of like, well, how do you, how are you going to do it this time? So in writing this book, you went and interviewed and researched many surfer addicts. What were some of the things that you learned as a result? One of the things that I felt a kinship with when I would read about other surfer addicts is how um, the, the kind of libertarianism in surfing, the kind of you're on your own and you have to save yourself. And, and there's a lot of interest in safety practices now in surfing. But the reality is that when you go surfing, you're on your own. You know, you've got to, you've got to swim if your leash breaks. And I, I grew up surfing without leashes. So in a way I have a, a more, you know, kind of uh, old fashioned sense of this being on my own. But, but when you surf, <clears throat> there's a quality of um, play 
and of pleasure, but there's also a quality of risk-taking and of going for it, as we say in surfing, that's entered the language. And you commit. And that feeling of, of commitment and of, of um, risk is very much something that sets, make, uh, lays the groundwork for addiction, lays the groundwork for drug experience. And, of, um, and also of a basic sense, this is one of the things that I love about surfing and surfers, of childlike, um, the, the, there's a kind of curious authority to remaining connected to nature and to play that surfing has and older surfers have. And it's a, kind of like a, a glint in surfers' eyes. You see it at all ages. And it's just a kind of joyousness and also, but also a daredevilness that I absolutely responded to. And I never, and nothing ever became more authoritative for me, like than that. To me, surfing as a, as a practice and as I, an identity is superior to art because there's that sense of it being for not, it's like dance, if anything, but there's that sense of it being, um, um, without concern for how it looks or without concern for whether anyone's watching without concern for whether it's going to be appreciated later. There's that, there's a lack of that sort of, um, of, um, sense of cultural stodginess that you get in, in, in writing and, and, and art that haunts writing art and is bad for it and is, and is in a way antithetical to art, but is there nonetheless. You don't get that in surfing very much. You get, you know, just a sense of um, spontaneity and, and carpe dia, you know, seizing the day, seizing the moment. And I just find that so um, admirable and powerful. And, uh, and yet, you know, that, that's what, that very thing is what makes surfers vulnerable to getting addicted drugs to drugs hmm. yeah sadly you know it's like that's also <laughs> that spirit of uh risk taking and of um and also of disconnection from the mainstream culture you know there's just like a fundamental disconnection from work like from getting a job there's just this sort of understanding among surfers that work is a joke and that acquiring things in this world is a joke compared to this thing we're doing. What can compare to that? All you need is your health and a surfboard and a day of good waves. You don't need anything else, you know? And uh, that, that, that fundamental rejection of, of uh, striving and acquisition and work is, it also sets you up for addiction, <laughs> you yeah. see? Because you're already, you've already marginalized yourself from a lot of the things that might save you from addiction. If you, if you, in other words, in a, in a kind of, in a pedestrian way, let's say, what saves you from addiction? Oh, I'm, I'm too busy to be an addict. I'm a realtor. I'm selling property. I'm making money. I've got properties everywhere and I've got a vacation home and I don't have time to surf, but I'm, I'm making money, you know, and I've got this family and I'm just too busy, right? That's not the typical surfer profile. The typical surfer profile is I'm underemployed. I'm waiting for the waves. There aren't enough waves to keep me busy. So what's, what do I do when there are no waves? So tell me about this process of getting surfer addicts to go on the record for this book. <laughs> yeah. 
there's a lot more of it than I did. I, I, I felt like I was touched. I was just doing a representative thing. I knew that there's a very, there's a very um, understandable closure, a tribal closure to surfing. Surfers don't want to rat each other out as drug users. They drug users in general don't want to rat each other out. You know, there's a kind of sense of it's private and yes. So-and-so he's, he underwent a whole um, saga uh, and he may have died uh, or, or he, he was an addict and he came out of it, but he's still falling. So you hear, I knew from the grapevine and just from reading that there's a lot of it out there. Very few of them were willing to talk to me. Um, and the ones who were, were tend to be a little more remarkable as people in the sense that they had internalized the notion in recovery that helping other addicts is important. How do you help other addicts? Well, you, you bear witness to your own struggle. There's a kind of, there's a sense in which that talking about it is not only good for you, but it's good for other addicts because they hear your story. They don't feel so alone. They feel connected. And that is an act of, um, that's a blessing. That's a mitzvah. You know, you're doing something good. So the ones who had gone that far into their recovery were willing to talk to me, but there are actually not that many of them. <laughs> so, um, but I, you know, the stories, the stories are, are amazing. And, uh, um, you know, you could go on and on. It could have been a really long book. And uh, so I, I, I tried to kind of streamline it and make it more um, representative rather than totalizing. Yeah. Yeah. You weave your story into the highs and lows of other surfers' stories, as well as the science behind addiction. Why did you choose to structure your narrative in this way? Um, I did it for just to give it a sense of, of um, shifting from one discourse to another. I wanted there to be variety in the sense of, um, of a, what a reader was going to encounter rather than it be a straight uh, memoir or a straight survey of, sci of uh, research um, on cutting edge addiction. Um, I wanted, I like what I read for there to be a sense of, of um, variety in the discourse, you know, shifting and coming mm -hmm. at it from different tones. So that was my, that was my um, prejudice as a form, you know, uh, technically. What about the interviews that you performed? What are you going to do with these interviews? Do you have recordings or did you just take notes? What are you going to do with all of that information? Um, I haven't really thought about that. I have them as recordings. Um, some I had as notes, you know, um, but I, I had thought I might do a kind of sizzler reel for this book in which I would use some of the quotes from the surfers in the reel, but I, I decided against that. And so I think it's probably just, you know, something that'll stay in the archives of my own little laptop. I don't have anything more ambitious about it. <laughs> How does surfing counterbalance the science of addiction and sort of the brain's ability to countermeasure the experience of getting high? You write about this concept, but how does surfing do that? Yeah. The, well, the theory right now is that surfing. Well, okay. So the the good news about the brain is it's it's is it's it's plastic in the sense that it's reshapeable. So long term addiction reshapes the brain in one way, but surfing is very powerful and can reshape it in another way. But it has similar 
but basically salubrious impacts on the brain. You know, so in other words, you get that risk, you get the rush, and you get the thrill, but it's not. Uh, but it, and, and and so there's a way in which it's kind of a transitional um, modality out of an addictive brain pattern toward um uh, toward another addictive brain powder uh, pattern, but one that's not going to be detrimental to your health in any obvious direct way, right? I mean, so you're kind of shifting and rewriting. That's the way. To, that's the way I think of it: is revising the brain through this new activity. And that's something you see a lot with um, on-spectrum kids who surf and um, uh, military veterans with PTSD is that if you have PTSD, you know, you're replaying this tape of this trauma. Your brain is flipping out over this trauma and it's doesn't want to let anything in. It's it's frightened. And um, how do you how do you get a brain that's 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 been shaken that deeply to stop playing that 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 trauma? Well, you have to have something also dramatic, and this is where psychedelics can work sometimes for PTSD, but also it can be surfing. Surfing, if you get knocked off your board and you're being tumbled underwater, you're not having your traumatic memory. Then it's too it's too all overpowering to be tumbled underneath a wave. There are too many demands on the brain's the brain to survive that experience um, for there to be that. So you're having there. There's a there's an instance in which you have a little break, right? And that little break from the pattern of trauma creates the opening for new. Um, experience for the brain to slightly rewire itself toward something else. And then the surfing can work to the advantage of someone suffering from PTSD. This is also apparently the case with kids on spectrum. It can rewire the uh, sort of abnormal frontal uh, prefrontal cortex, you know, it has the impact it can be on the brain. Yeah, you write, quote, surfing once regarded as dangerously subversive has emerged as a therapeutic tool. So have LSD and psychedelics. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you were younger, or when you first took up surfing, it was sort of this counterculture and associated with, you know, hippies and sort of a derelict society in a sense. And now it's like this pure form of bonding with nature. And when you think of surfers, you think of like this meditative, like lovely sport. And, you know, now if somebody surfs, you're like, wow, you know, and then of course, like you say, these psychedelics are now sort of at the forefront of science, um, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah, that is so interesting the way you're putting it too. It's like it has come, it's undergone such a change culturally as the way it signifies, what it signifies and the, the kind of um, associations with surfing are so much, are so different now. But the point I'm making in that section with psychedelics is that the return, and this is something that um, I, I have to credit uh, Michael Pollan for pointing out, which is the return to psychedelics as therapy is a return to nature. And surfing is fundamentally a return to nature, wilderness nature, ocean nature. That's what's so intense about surfing. It's not the, it's not chiefly, I mean, the fundamental thing that surfing does is put you on alert and on, your brain is vigilant because you're in nature 
and you're not, and, and in the water, you're not even supposed to be there, right? You're kind of like out of your element. So you're, you're having to navigate all of this novelty and difficulty and low-grade um, survival alerts. And that really brings you into the present. And that really subordinates your ego to the experience. Psychedelics obliterate the ego. Psychedelics is far more um, dramatically um, obliterative of the ego. Surfing definitely diminishes the land-based ego, though. As soon as you step into the water, you have to confront your minority. You know, you're just a little tiny little thing and you better be on your game and you better, you know, be fit enough to deal with this and you paddle out and, and, and everything goes well and there are sharks around and there are big waves and you never know what's gonna happen. That whole tonality makes the, the kind of big shot ego, the controlling ego on land lose his footing. He's not the boss anymore. And that shift right there helps people psychologically with emotion processing. It puts you, um, it gives you a sense of awe and of um, smallness in a good way. And it's a milder form of what psychedelics does. You know what I mean? It's like a, a kind of more daily practice. So it's like a walk in the woods does something comparably mild, milder than surfing, right? You can see that there's a kind of spectrum yeah. of intensities Death is a theme throughout this book. Why? Mm -hmm. Oh, uh-huh. Um, that's 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 a that's a good that's a great question. Um, I think I, I I think the connection between surfing and death and addiction, you know, is is there kind of at various is is a is a kind of thematic connection down low. You know, the the threat of death when you surf, the threat of the threat of death and addiction, my own family history with the, with the suicides um, and having to confront death um, relatively young um, and, and also a, a sort of elected death <laughs> is different from, uh, an, you know, there's a, there's a quality to suicide that is um, specific and more um, requires more of your more 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 kind of a, a different sort of confrontation of de of death so um i'm trying to weave those those things together um and they just inevitably kind of coalesce for me uh when i write about my life you know i'm i'm, I'm running them together and I'm, they run together they braid you know as themes tell me about the beautiful godlike image on the cover of this book yeah, it's, I'm so I'm so delighted with the cover. It's um by by a surf photographer named Brian Bielman, who's from um, the East Coast, and he moved to Hawaii in the '70s. And um, he was a like a lot of like a lot of surf photographers. He himself is a really good surfer. And then he just got more and more into photography and he, and photographers in surfing are witnesses. You know, they're the chroniclers, uh, the filmmakers and the photographers are really like the chroniclers of surfing. They see everything. They record most everything, not everything. And um, Beelman got into underwater photography specifically. So when you wipe out in a wave, there's what happens above that everyone sees. And there's what happens below the surface, which is what this photograph with the cover shows is very clear Hawaii up. Uh, I think it's Tahitian water. Um, there's the reef, there's a surfer who's fallen off and is kind of struggling, writhing. And uh, it's such an, a, a beautiful image of just of um, struggle, 
like agon, right? Um, and you're, there's that sense in that photograph of the surfer um, trying to swim free. That's what you're doing when you wipe out is you're waiting. You do a lot of, there's a lot of humility in surfing in the sense that you're always being reminded of how small and powerless you are. So when you wipe out in surfing, you wait for the wave to diminish, right? So you can swim, but there are certain ways where you can start swimming right away or you you fall and you're trying to swim out the back of the wave so you're not dragged across a reef, which is in the, in the case of South Pacific surf, you're really worried about the reef a lot. So he's, in this case, this guy's trying to swim out the back a bit. Um, and uh, and yet he's not in control. You can see he's he's being dragged forward too, right? How did you get permission to use this image? Do you know the photographer? I had a connection to him through a friend. I have a friend who uh, is a former pro surfer uh, named Jamie Brissick, and he knows everybody. And so I, 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 I thought, Jamie, you know, I wanted, do you know this guy? And he's like, of course. So I, and the guy was delighted. You know, he's just like, they're lovely. You know, surfers are generally really um, generous. And that's how he was. How long did it take you to put this book together? This came together relatively quickly for me. I'm a slow writer. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a way in which you never know what you really are. But for me, my the, my experience of writing books is slow. And um, so I, I had an idea for it. And then I wrote a proposal. And that took about you know six to eight months. And then I sold it as a proposal. And then I started writing. And so for me, two to three years is fast. And that that's about what it took. What is your role at the Leon Levy Center for Biography? I work with Kai Bird, who's the executive director. I'm the associate director. And what I do is help Kai think about what would be an interesting biography to highlight and to explore through an event. So last night we did Blake Bailey and talking about his Philip Roth biography with Mary Carr. I mean, it's delightful. I love biography as a form. I've always learned history through biography, history, literary history, history, history. And um, what else do I do? I pay bills. I, um, I help select the fellows for each year. We select five biography fellows, five or six. Um, one Sloan science uh, biographer and uh, four or five or six regular biographers. And, um, and then I kind of make their life um, functional at the Graduate Center where the, the Leon Levy Center is based. I just kind of make it all administratively functional. Tell me about your role working with the Leon Levy Center fellows. Um, I find out what they're interest, what they're writing about, and I just kind of um, suggest things. I I also take part in these. Um, we have monthly seminars, so we have one coming up to I guess next week on Tuesday. If I'll give you an example, the last one of the year for us is um, the Sloan Fellow is writing a biography of a naturalist who worked with Peter Matheson. The naturalist's name is George Schaller. She has this chapter and we're all going to read it and we're all going to critique it. So this is the really valuable thing for, for the fellows because they have a deadline. She's been looking at that deadline coming for months and thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to get this ready. I've got to get this ready. And then she submits it. And then we all weigh in on it and she hears from people and it's like a writing workshop. So that part of it is, um, for me, the highlight. I love doing that. I love reading. And the, and, the, and the writing level is extremely high. Most of these people have book contracts. It's, it's very much like um, a salon. How does your role influence your writing? Um, I have become more and more 
interested in writing a biography, you know, I've started to think like, well, who, who's way, what writer or whatever would I like to do a biography of, but I haven't really ever thrown down and done it. Um, this is my fourth year working there. And I just feel like it's almost inevitable that I'm going to be uh, influenced by that thinking about biography so much to write one myself. What's your writing process like? Um, I write in the morning. I write, I tend to write longhand until I reach a certain point of momentum. And then I start to write on the computer and it always all it's changing it's always evolving i don't have any rigidly set thing i do feel that there was a moment where i shifted from being a, a writer who wrote at night to writing in the morning and that was a good thing and i i i just have continued to to write in the morning as a kind of something i've habituated myself to and i think that writing habits are re really important in that way you know just to establish a kind of almost like a muscle memory or hunger, like you want coffee and you want to write those two things. If you can establish that, that's really important. Aside from surfing, what's your favorite form of self-care? I know that's probably a tough question to answer, but you know, I know you meditate. Uh, yeah, meditation is really big. I really love meditating. I get a lot of pleasure and, and, and focus out of it. But I, I like to work out, you know, I do some kind of um, some kind of weightlifting or cardio every try to do it every day. Um, and that's a big part of it. I get a lot of, you know, endorphin, I'm really aware of all the endorphin pleasures and just the runners high that you get from working out. So yeah, I believe that. that changes my mood for the better always, right? Well, Thad, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Same here, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. We'd like to thank Thad Zilkowski for being on the podcast. You can follow Thad on Twitter at Thad Zilkowski. Do you have a question, comment, or want to suggest someone for a future episode? Tweet us at Inkslingers2 or email us at inkslingerspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram to see photos of today's guest, and don't forget to visit our website at inkslingerspodcast.com. Inkslingers is written and produced by Jenny Skoog and Sierra Holt. Help with sound design and editing comes from Eric Farley. Special thanks to the Leon Levy Center for Biography for their support. Our music is Dub Feral by Kevin McLeod.